Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. I'm so excited today. I have two guests who have written a subject that I have worked on, killing rats in the time of cholera and plague. Lucas Engelman and Christos Linteris published Sulfuric Utopias, a history of maritime fumigation with MIT Press in 2020. Lucas Engelman is currently Chancellor's Fellow in the History and Sociology of Biomedicine in the Department of Science, Technology, and Innovation Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Previously, he has uh, held a number of fellowships at Cambridge and in Switzerland. He co-edited Plague in the City with Dr. Lynn Terrace and is author of Mapping AIDS, Visual Histories of an Enduring Epidemic out with Cambridge University Press in 2018. He has about two dozen articles and book chapters on various aspects of disease and medicine, uh, his, uh, and they include mapping and images of epidemics and a piece on the plague in my hometown, Honolulu, Hawaii. His current five-year project is The Epidemiological Revolution, a history of epidemiological reasoning and the 20th century, funded by the European Research Council. Christos Linteris is a senior lecturer in social anthropology at the University of St. Andrews. He is the author of Human Extinction and the Pandemic Imaginary, 2019 with Rutledge, Ethnographic Plague, Configuring Disease on the Chinese-Russian Frontier, 2016 with Paul Grave Macmillan, and The Spirit of Selflessness in Maoist China, Socialist Medicine and the New Man, 2020, also with Paul Grave Macmillan. Dr. Linteris is the co-editor of four anthologies, Framing Animals as Epidemic Villains, Histories of Non-Human Disease Vectors, The Anthropology of Epidemics, Plague in the City, and Histories of uh, Plague in the City and Histories of Postmortem Contagion, Infectious corpus, Corpses, excuse me, Infectious Corpses, and Contested bur- Burials. He has over 80 research publications, which I will now read out one by one. Um, I'm joking. Um, He is quite the prolific uh, uh, researcher. And currently, he is running a five-year research project on something close to my heart, entitled The Global War Against the Rat, The Epistemic Emergence of Zoonosis, is is funded by a generous grant from the Wellcome Trust. Previously, he had another five-year project, Visual Representations of the Third Plague Pandemic, which was funded by the European Research Council. All of this raises the question in my mind, when does this guy sleep? Lucas Engelman and Christos Linteras, welcome to New Books in History. Great to be here. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. And, Thank we, you for and where, where are you guys right now? Where are you speaking from? I'm sitting in Edinburgh in lovely Scotland. And uh, we're still in lockdown. But we're persevering, as they say down here in Edinburgh, more specifically in Leith. <laughs> okay. 
and I am an hour north from where Lucas is in uh, St. Andrews, uh, a medieval uh, campus city, as it calls itself, because it ha- does have a, a burned-down cathedral, so that makes it a city, formally speaking. And uh, the lockdown here uh, is rather pleasant, I would say. We've got beaches all around and hills, so we can walk, uh, and it's uh, seagulls and ravens, <laughs> which keep us company. <laughs> The ravens are a little ominous. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, have, I also am in a beach town in Santa Cruz, California, and having access to the beach, I think, has been a real privilege during the uh, the lockdown time period. Um, so, please tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, how you and how you came to write um, write this book. So, um, let's start with Lucas. Um, how did you come to be an expert on the history of disease? I'm not sure I'm an expert on the history of disease in general, but I, I was fairly, so my my way into the history of um, disease was through the history of HIV and AIDS. That was subject of my PhD, and I think what drew me to that history was in particular the 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 capacity of AIDS to to undermine any kind of disciplinary order or any kind of disciplinary coherence in so many ways. And that when you start writing about HIV AIDS, you constantly shift the registers between different disciplinary frameworks and different disciplinary perspectives, because it's just so such a pervasive subject that gets in so many aspects of human and non-human history that um, I just uh, found this utterly fascinating. And from there, then I developed quite, I guess, an, an appetite for history of epidemics and thought that the history of epidemics at least in the 20s and to some extent in the 19th century, continues to be a history that 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 is characterized by its by its um, sweeping impact on many different facets of society, and and you can write across social, cultural, biologically, medical, and political histories, and that's really really what fascinates me continuously in that area. And and what what are the the various um epidemics that you've worked on? I mean, with the HIV AIDS, bubonic plague. I, I would, I would stop there. I think that's, that's so far what I've, what I've published on HIV AIDS. Yeah. And um, for me, it's, it's, it's almost like, a, like a, like a framing beginning and end. So and now I'm very much in, interested in the history of epidemiology as a field of, of, of knowledge production. And, and I started with HIV AIDS, which is like at the end of the 20th century, it was a very specific take. And then return to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, where 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 the where the where the encounter with bubonic plague was quite formative for epidemiology, and so that's where I, um, I started with this interest on epidemiology at large. Yeah, but right, yeah, the, the third plague pandemic of the either 1850s or 1890s to about ni- the 1950s, right? About that, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But the third plague pandemic. Um, Christos, you're an anthropologist, but um, as I was joking before, you play well with historians and have a, um, a special relationship with um, with history, especially uh, history of disease and rat history. Um, uh, my friends were teasing me on on Twitter before this interview. I'm like, I'm gonna, I said, I'm actually going to interview the real rat killing expert. I'm uh, I'm <laughs> I, I just do Vietnam. But um, how did you come into this field of research? So I was uh, doing my ethnographic fieldwork uh, in the post-SARS uh, 
China uh, in uh, 2007, 2008, really, uh, more of 2008, uh, doing fieldwork in a CDC uh, station in Beijing for my PhD thesis. And there, in between um, uh, following and working with epidemiologists, I discovered slowly archives uh, relating to the Manchurian plague of 1910-11. the famous incident of pneumonic plague, which uh, spread throughout uh, North uh, East China. Right, which, 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 which coincided with the third plague pandemic, but was somewhat different, right? Well, there was like some debate yes. on that? Yeah, well, I, I wish there was more debate, actually. But yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it's, it's uh, uh, really considered to be part of the third pandemic. Although, biologically speaking, I think the link is rather suspicious because the the outbreak uh, relate the outbreaks relating to the Manchurian uh, epidemic of 1910 really began simultaneously with the Hong Kong one in 1894, uh, as very well covered in Russian epidemiological literature, which very few people read, uh, of course. Um, and and so I think biologically speaking, we cannot connect it with the Yunnan epicenter of the. Uh, right. It, 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 was, lo- it was local fur trappers, right? Who. Uh... Yes, that was marmot hunters. Marmot uh, hunters, yeah. Yeah, so marmot hunting, of course, has been uh, there for, well, for a very long time, for ages. Uh, but it was the industrial hunting of marmots for uh, fur, because their fur was used in the 1910s as imitation sable, and there was a huge demand for it in London, Leipzig, and places like that. So a lot of people came from uh, central China, from Shandong province in particular, to hunt the marmots in the Mongolian steppes. Uh, so wait, and, so is, is global capitalism is the fault of this again? Yeah, of, course. <laughs> of course. Okay. That's just, okay. We'll just assume that. Okay. I'm sorry. What's right. strange Go on. about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was what led me to uh, medical history was uh, a classic act of uh, sedition or treason for an anthropologist uh, moving from the field to archives, which is the... <laughs> original scene for historical anthropology and uh, I, I'm hooked you know it's uh, the I love the archives and and then I started researching plague uh, more and more and more um, I, I had a postdoc in Cambridge after my PhD which was on uh, specifically the marmot uh, hunter relation in that region which was followed up by the, the project you mentioned the European Research Council project uh, the visual representations of the third plague pandemic, which was on photographs and other means of re- representing uh, that disease. Um, so I started with SARS, and then I ended up with plague, a similar story with Lucas's, uh, but uh, also from ethnography to history, if you want, or from ethnography to archives. Uh, and uh, yeah, plague became my home. Uh, I think plague is an absolutely fascinating disease and organism, uh, both because of uh, all the centuries that this has preoccupied humanity and the different manifestations in different uh, social and cultural contexts, and because of its actual kind of uh, disease ecology. It's so complex. Uh, it, it infects so many different animals. It, co- it creates natural reservoirs in, in so many different ways and, and areas across the globe, it is really, really hard to pin down and decipher in any mechanistic kind of epidemiological way. And this is just, you know, if I am allowed to say that for a disease, I think it's beautiful. 
Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An organism. I mean, you know, plague has a right. Like rabbits and humans and everything else in this world. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's happier left to itself. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't want humans to intervene intervene no, in no, its, it uh... humans are a dead end. It's pointless for, for plague to infect humans. Right. Right. It's it's happier with rodents and 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 with and rodents, stuff. yeah. <laughs> in in the Kazakh steppe. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also endemic here in California. Um, True. That the uh, you know there's been a, a case a few years ago where a family uh, in Yosemite Valley picked up plague on vacation, um, and then the um, the where I got my PhD, University of California Santa Cruz, uh, beautiful campus, these lovely hills, and tons of ground squirrels, and you're not allowed to bring dogs up there. For a couple of reasons, one of which is the um, the ground squirrels uh, um, are an endemic plague uh, reservoir. Um, so it is it is with us here in California. One of the things I find so fascinating is the 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 more recent spread to North America. I mean, it really is around 1900 when yeah. international shipping brings it to Honolulu, my hometown, San Francisco, and then spreads into the, the West. And now Colorado, it's endemic in the prairie dogs or whatever they call those furry little critters. Well, so Sophuric Utopias is the offspring of uh, what I call a mixed marriage, a union of an anthropologist and a historian. Um, although uh, um, Christos just admitted that those boundaries are pretty shaky with him because he's he, uh, he crosses that boundary. So how did you two blend these disciplines into a single monograph? And um, what did each disciplinary perspective bring to the book? Mm, I would I would start with saying like it's actually surprisingly easy. Yeah, it's I think it's a it's an, it's it's also an interdisciplinary collaboration that I always cherished. Long before having worked with Christos, already really liked the kind of conversations, um, especially I guess between medical historians and medical anthropologists. There is I think a deep understanding and also a shared theoretical foundation that to some extent goes to Foucault, but also to some extent in other directions. Um, and I think that is that is something that makes this work quite easily. And then there's also, um, even if part of that collaboration is that, that one is working more in fields and the other one is working more in the archives, which in our case is not really the case, yeah? um, there is a deep appreciation for each other's uh, expertise and each other's fields and archives as places that are very valuable. And that goes as far as to, I think, I learned the most about doing my archival research from anthropologists and how anthropologists would approach an archive. And I think that enriched my archival experience far more than any kind of Hilfswissenschaft uh, uh, teaching that I received when I studied history, Yeah, where I was supposedly prepared for archival research, but that was very technical and very sobering experience whereas the kind of encounter and engagement with the archives as situated as 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 also very uncultured if you want um, um spaces is something that i really took away from the collaboration with anthropologists um but in our case i think we both share a similar fascination for the archive we both share a similar fascination for a good story and we both stumbled in this work on the visual histories of the third plague pandemic, the project that Christus 
Christos was leading, we both stumbled and kept on stumbling over archival sources pointing to this story so that we knew at some point we have we just have to tell it. Yeah, yeah I think that if, if I may uh, use an obscure reference of the Romanian surrealist Gerasim Luca, the, the Clayton machine was an objectively offered object. It was something <laughs> that we stumbled upon time and again until we could no longer ignore it. <laughs> and it was great fun, you know, to finally acknowledge it, you know, like good surrealists and, and work with it and let it unsettle our understandings of technology, medicine, quarantine, biopolitics uh, and the rest. Yeah, well, well, I, I, I love works that, that bring together cultural anthropology and history. I mean, it's... I'm always sort of embarrassed by uh, by this because I, I you know I read a lot of anth- cultural anthropology in graduate school and since then and have that perspective but feel so dumb when I talk to cultural anthropologists because they're so smart and so articulate and use such lovely words. And one of one of my advisors uh, said that the difference between historians and uh, anthropologists is that anthropologists are really really smart and cult- and historians are really hard workers. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a historian, but he was married to an anthropologist. <laughs> so, but um, anyway, um, the, so the book set in a really important moment in world history at the, the turn of the 20th century, which you alluded to previously. Can you set the historical context for us? Um, what was happening in the history of disease, in the history of capitalism, and in the history of empire at this moment of the, the dawn of the 20th century? I mean, I can... I can start with the with the history of disease, maybe because that's mostly my, my domain. But I think one cannot emphasize enough how much of a transformation is happening in in that period, and that really is a transformation on both the scale of research. That is a transformation on the the, the kind of research that is developed. That is a transformation in the paradigms that are being introduced. This is the the first high era of microbiology, of bacteriology, which to some extent perhaps revolutionized some of the approaches to with which diseases were understood, with which infectious diseases were understood. That's in the historiography often debated to what extent this really constituted a revolution. But it is certainly a time in which one could say the, 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 the research enterprise around infectious diseases takes shape on a global scale. And that's, of course, also then a history that is deeply entangled with the history of capitalism and with the history of the empire. And that is, is one of the aspects why, why we were drawn to this story, because that makes this story in this book make this so ab- abundantly clear. Um, the second aspect, I think some people have referred to that to that period at the late 19th century and the early 20th century as the, the first the first push to globalization, I think that's a bit of an euphemism for what was actually a late stage of empires. But technologically and economically, it's a period in which the in the the, the in which the in which the the import of basic goods, grain, tobacco, um, becomes so abundantly cheap to be organized across seas from the colonies that it starts to overtake economically local production in many of the empires, particularly when we talk about grains. And that is really when this, when you have this sudden rise of maritime traffic and sudden rise of maritime uh, trade 
um, with the introduction, of course, of the steamships. Steamships yeah. and canals, the Suez yeah. Canal and then the exactly. Panama Canal. Yeah. yeah. In, in many ways, technology is making a, a mockery of uh, earlier limitations of time and space, um, ma making the world like much smaller in terms of what you can get where and uh, and in, in what quantities, too. Yeah. I mean, that's what's really astounding with the, uh, the steamships. You can take so much more cargo against the wind. Uh, which would have been, you know, un unimaginable a uh, hundred years earlier. I and mean, this, of course, as you said, this plague, yes. and, and what's Sorry. that? This, this, of course, spreads plague re really, really fast across the globe. Because if you think like, of course, Europe had rats with plague, I don't know, in the 18th century, in the, in the 17th century, and mass amounts of uh, numbers of boats traveled from Europe to the Americas. But so why didn't the Americans get plague? No, well, the, the passage was too slow, and, and the rats would die in the holds of ships without reaching the harbor of destination, so, as they, so they could disembark and infect local rats. So the, the steamship being so fast meant that rats could uh, develop plague in the boat and reach the next destination still alive so as to disembark and infect other rats. You know, and that's something which is really, really key to the third pandemic. Absolutely, absolutely. And all, all these things sort of come together at the same time. It's sort of like the the metaphor of a, a snowball rolling down a hill. I mean, you guys are in Northern Europe. You know more about snow. I'm, I'm from Hawaii. I don't know about snow. But I've been told that when a snowball rolls down a hill, it, more and more snow builds on it, and it gets bigger and bigger, at least as what I saw in the cartoons. Um, <laughs> so um, the book engage, also engages maritime history. Um, and so much of our thinking about history is tied to the nation state or specific cities or maybe continents. But as Paul Gilroy showed, uh, just as an example, uh, Paul Gilroy in Black Atlantic, there is a world and a history happening at sea. Ships are both sites of, of movement, um, but they can also be moored and be stationary um, temporarily or for, for longer periods of time. How do, how do you understand the maritime world in your project? I think we, we, we grappled a lot with that when we grappled a lot with that trying to understand especially the maritime world through the through the uh, perception of its dangers from the perspective of the Moorage you know? I think that's that's the, the the perspective from which we rolled out this field what I found really helpful was was thinking about quarantine stations and particularly here Alison Bashford's work on on quarantine and the the, the the idea that that the world is is of course a world of of connected nation and of connected continents through the maritime world, but it's also a world of those kind of places that are somewhat suspended between the maritime seas, the kind of like vast emptiness of the seas, and the nation states. And these are the kind of the archipelagos, the islands like Angel Island, or um, I forgot what the the archipelago is called in in Sydney. Um, but you have you have and, and most of Ellis this, Island in Ellis Island in New York is the famous oh, one on the East Coast. Exactly, Angel, Angel Island, Island is in, in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. yeah, and the quarantine station on, on in in Honolulu was also on an island that uh, names Sand Island. Sand Island, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, very very, and, very creative, beautiful Hawaiian name there, Sand Island. Sand Island. <laughs> it's also a beautiful place. I think it's it's washed away if I if I remember correctly. <laughs> but these islands they're all also connected, and I think that Ellis and Bashford really nicely showed this in the work and they are places in these quarantine islands 
with all these sailors quarantined, in which this whole global history of maritime traffic, but also of the connected nations that constantly mingles due to the sailors coming from all over the planets, being quarantined over periods there and creating this like microcosmos of that global history happening in very localized spaces that are still somewhat suspended and away from the actual, uh, um, both from the, from the overseas world as well as from the nation state to which they kind of uh, um, can, can, can look across the, the bay. Yeah? And I think this kind of suspended space is really what, what, what was quite important to us to think through and what that suspended space between traffic and between arriving creates in terms of, of, of uh, um, necessities, in terms of control uh, requirements to control this kind of space, but also as a space in which the difference is created between the danger of the, the traffic or the danger of the pathogen that comes across the sea and the, 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 the kind of nation state that is supposed to be protected. Yeah, the, these um, quarantine islands, um, you know, as, as I've been working on uh, History of Plague, and it, they, they remind me a lot of international airports today, <laughs> you know, where, where um, you know, have I been to Japan yeah, I've been to Japan a bunch of times, but I've never left Narita Airport. Um, so was I really in Japan? Geographically, yes, but really no. And what I was experiencing in Narita was very similar to what I'd experienced in Heathrow or Chicago O'Hare or, um, uh, I don't know, yeah. Jongi in Singapore. And these, again, this I love that archipelago idea that there's these, these points around the world that are in different geographical locations, but they're all tied together with the very similar cultural and, and, and material experience of being in this, this site that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think this is just so, so, so thought provoking. And I really, really love that. Um, let's, let's um, talk about the notion of utopia. Um, and maybe um, Chris does can speak to this. Um, Sir Thomas More coined the word utopia from the Greek, uh, forgive my pronunciation, but utopos, um, meaning no place or nowhere. And uh, it was a pun on the almost identical Greek word, utopos, uh, a good place. So w- where did this sulfuric utopia exist? And, and you know, if taking More's uh, notion of it being no place, did it, did it ever really exist? Well, it existed in the minds of capitalists and hygienists at the time, for sure, and port authorities. So the whole idea was, you know, could we have a system uh, which would uh, uh, kind of abolish, if possible, quarantine and replace it with kind of a chemical uh, technology that uh, would control disease in boats? So what's the problem with quarantine? The problem with quarantine for trade rather than human quarantine, a cargo quarantine, is that it detains cargo for 40 or more days. And and hence, well, A, one problem is that cargo may be spoiled uh, as it's waiting, or that it will lose its value, or and even if it doesn't lose its value, it's costly and there is a, a loss of money in this process. So uh, within that, the time framework uh, of the book, say 1870s to 1920s, um, when we have this uh, global uh, uh, empire uh, being uh, developed across the globe and also a, a very, very aggressive capitalism, especially after the defeat of the Paris Commune, uh, 
and the 150 years anniversary is coming up soon. Yeah, um, I, I love that you referenced that as as this important point there. I mean, yeah, I thought I that was a really perfect. Point. Yeah. It's this very, very disappointing point in, in world history. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt here, but so often we talk about you know the era of new imperialism starting in 1871 because uh, France and Germany go into this Cold War in Europe where they project their battles overseas. But it, in, in the book, you point out, and I lo- again, I love this, that 1871 is also the triumph of capital over up to that point, which is the most radical challenge to it. So. I forget. I, yeah. Forgive me. I just really want no, to underline no, that. You're right. Yes. Yeah, so in this, in in that political and political economic context, we have this vision, this capitalist and hygienic, uh, hygienist rather vision of abolishing quarantine and, and replacing it with this uh, new technology that would allow uh, cargo to travel across the globe without infecting the ports where it is unloaded. Uh, and without stopping the free flow of uh, of trade and capital, etc. So this is a utopia which exists in in these people's mind, and they try to implement it through different, not just the Clayton machine, but different fumigation machines and technologies. Some of these technologies do not involve machines; they're more prosaic. Uh, but all of these together form this, if you want, broader apparatus of trying to replace quarantine with something which is seen as as uh, new and modern and technologically advanced and the cutting edge kind of uh, the newest thing in uh, medical and uh, uh, sanitation technology. And this remains a technology for so long, for, say, 50 or more years, precisely because it doesn't work, right? It mm-hmm. never achieves its goal, but it doesn't not work as well. So it, it doesn't completely fail, but it doesn't achieve its goal. And this in-between kind of liminal situation where it achieves some of, some of its goals or it creates new goals for itself, which it does not achieve exactly. And so this constant displacement of what is the utopian goal is what make, makes it work. And this, again, is very, very characteristic of capitalism, which, as we know, by uh, Deleuze and Guattari, only works uh, as long as it constantly breaks down. Great. So, I mean, we've been we've been touching on this, but what what is the basic argument of Sophoric Utopia? Um, what is what is? I mean, it's a, it's a collection of several different perspectives and, and pieces. But what what is what is the main thrust here? I mean, Christos just just mentioned that, and it's the yeah. it's the it's the idea that that I think the 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 um, one of the members of the 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 Board of Health in, in New Orleans brings that brings that also to the point. It's like we need to create highways for trade and barriers for disease. Yeah. And that's that's the idea that is encapsulated in that. It's that a revolutionary moment that is fueled by by a scientific revolution, that is fueled by new understanding of, of pathogens and the transmission of diseases on a global scale, that is fueled by the first awareness of pandemics happening diseases that similarly happen around the world that are somehow fueled by by the global trade and as such appear as a threat to the thriving or emerging uh, um, capitalist international global imperial economy. And these are all folded together into this dream of overcoming this conundrum that with trade comes disease uh, through an ingenious invention, which is not that ingenious after all, that 
also is, and I think that's 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 one point I would add here. That's also a beautiful story of modernization, because it not just uses any kind of chemical, but it uses sulfur, and sulfur, of course, is is as a chemical that, on the one hand, has a has a has an ancient history yeah, that we touch a bit in the beginning of the book of being used for preventive and therapeutic forms by the alchemists later. And then also appears throughout the 19th century as a as a chemical that is attributed a certain capacity, but it's only there at the end of the 19th century where that capacity becomes defined as a disinfectant, or defined as a destructive capacity towards certain organic matters. And that all falls together then with the same aspects that we also would add is that the production or the the, the kind of the mining of sulfur becomes incredibly cheap at the end of the 19th century uh, um, as a side or as a side effect of 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 the of the um, te- technological inventions for mining of oil yeah so all of that is part of that story that somehow then leads to this idea that with sulfuric uh, um, fumigation one can overcome one can overcome almost anything that hasn't been modern yeah only to never really become modern Sorry, Christos, for that Latourian quote. <laughs> <laughs> You're forgiven. <laughs> and also, I think very important is that, of course, there is no consensus about what plague is or how plague spreads. Contra Latour uh, and his pasteurization of France, which uh, unfortunately has created the caricature of uh, uh, the Pasteurian uh, discovery of plague. Uh, actually, within the Pasteur Institute, people didn't really agree, and definitely outside the Pasteur Institute, no one was quite convinced about how plague is spread. Uh, Everyone agreed on the microbe itself, on the bacterium, but that was not enough, of course. So uh, we have conflicting epistemologies of uh, uh, and antagonistic epistemologies of plague and its carriers, its spreaders. Is the rat involved? Is Is the soil, the earth involved in the spreading of plague? Are fleas important or not? Uh, and various other questions, uh, which we now think of as obsolete, but actually they were very important at the time. And at the same time, we have rival empires who, of course, want to confound each other. You know, they're not out there to create a joint utopia. You know, the British want to confound the Ottomans, the Ottomans want to confound the the British and the French, the French and the Germans, etc., etc. So each uh, develop their own argument, their own machines, their own technologies, some sulfur-based and some carbon-based. The German ones, for example, were carbon-based and the Ottoman ones. And through this this, uh, bringing together of different visions of plague and different visions of plague control, uh, we actually have a clash of empires, uh, which is very visible in international conferences, but also in, um, if you want, international or multinational uh, bodies of, uh, of epidemic control such as the Istanbul uh, Board of Quarantine, which is composed by uh, representatives or delegates from different nations. And in that archive, for example, we see uh, enormous fights between uh, medical delegates about all these things, which have a very, very clear imperial purpose. I really appreciated the the discussion of the Ottoman Empire and their efforts at plague control. And, you know, uh, Especially, you know, so much of the European literature is the stereotype of the sick man of Europe. The empire is, you know, hobbling along, losing pieces are falling off, right? It's sort of 
Um, when I, when I teach it uh, to my students, I'd say it's like the Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense, where Bruce Willis is a ghost and doesn't know he's he's dead yet, right? In the autumn, that, that that's sort of the narrative. But there's actually this really incredible vitality in late Ottoman um, scientific research and and diplomatic engagement with um, issues of international public health. You know, controlling the um, the Jeddah, the port for the the, the holy city uh, of Mecca and, and the Hajis and the annual pilgrimage. And in addition to important trade uh, flowing through the Ottoman Empire, they're very, very active and very concerned. And, and, and so much of, I think, the, the historiography of Europe and public history is about France and England and Germany and maybe some Japan, right? And the Ottomans get alighted. So I was really delighted to see that history in conversation there. Um, so in addition to empires, there's there's some other main characters in the book, many of which are are not human. Um, cholera, plague, and yellow fever um, are, are characters here. How do these non-human actors play various roles in uh, in in history? Um, maybe Lucas, you can speak to that. We certainly we we we. I think what we what we tried to do with the book was to 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 take a step back from 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 from. Um, a disease biography, yeah, and to to not just tell the story of a single disease. I mean, you 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 no doubt have by now uh, um, caught a glimpse of the fascination for plague that is certainly present in this in this book and among us. But but it's it was quite important from the outset to think about this book as one that addresses that takes the Clayton apparatus series as one that was understood, conceptualized, and and also embodied with that utopian hope with regards to all diseases that could possibly be transferred and possibly be kind of uh, um, communicated via the maritime traffic. Um, in practice, and to the extent that we that we looked into this history and the time frame that we looked into, it boiled down to mostly concerns around yellow fever. And that was in those regions where yellow fever was, was um, um, a particular concern. And the history of plague, Again, again, and and again, and it was often a history of plague that wasn't even uh, um, a confrontation with outbreaks of plague that might or might not happen in certain port cities, but the anticipation of the outbreak of plague and the devastation that that might bring, which also in the cases where it arrived, like in San Francisco or like in Buenos Aires, it never really did lead to the kind of anticipated extent of disaster that it that it was uh, um, understood with, and though. In that way, I think you can think about the diseases as as actors in there, as there there was a certain imagination about the diseases of yellow fever and the disease and the disease of bubonic plague that led to um, a sense of urgency, but also to a sense of 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 global uh, collaboration yeah, across various boundaries to 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 develop systems of containment. Or systems of control. Yeah, I think that's an amazing point about the third plague pandemic is that it is this global moment of anxiety and panic. Yet yeah. the numbers are pretty pretty low. Um, and my students always ask about that, and they say, "Well, the numbers are so low. You know, you, 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 how, how is this really important?" It's like, well, "We'll look at how medical authorities responded. Look at how state systems responded. Look at." Uh, impacts on uh, the flow of trade and so forth, the economic consequences. 
And again, it's that, it's that anticipation that you said, that anxiety that in some ways is more important than the actual impact of the um, the disease. I mean, not to you know belittle the death or the suffering of any individual, but but it's it's not quite the it's not the Black Death of the 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 Middle Ages, but, right? But it's it not. is in their minds, and I think that's important. In their minds, you said. Yeah, yeah. That, so that's the medical imagination uh, that Lucas is referring to. Exactly. That the, mo- the moment when uh, Gerson identifies the bacterium and says, this is the bacterium that led to the Black Death, with Black Death, of course, being a mid-19th century category and not a medieval category. It's a Gothic category, as historians have shown. Uh, you know, it Gothifies uh, nature and disease. So they're summoning up this uh, specter of, of the Black Death. So every single outbreak, no matter how small, is seen as a possible precursor of the Black Death, the return of the Black Death. When, of course, 12 million people die in the third plague pandemic, so it's it's not an insignificant <laughs> event in terms of mortality. You know, it's a lot of people uh, dying, especially at that time. Uh, and in some places like India, it's really, really uh, yeah. uh, big. Uh, I mean, Thank, thanks to the British colonizers, of course. Yes, thanks to the British colonizers. <laughs> um, uh, but I think what creates this anxiety and this concern is this imagination of the Black Death on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have to be a bit fair to these people, but it's also the, the actual biological um, uh, complexity of plague. Right. which they see as its elusiveness. They don't see it as complexity. They see it as an ability, an innate ability of the bacterium or the disease to hide, mm-hmm. to transform, to be a trickster, to, to have an agency to confound human will and, and, and effort. Uh, of course, this is all because of the, as I said, the disease com- uh, eco- ecological complexity. It has so many different uh, uh, transmission pathways, uh, hosts, maintenance pathways, and which, of course, are really, really difficult to, to understand, especially in the midst of a crisis. Right? But this is also another thing which creates anxiety, that they don't see the same thing everywhere. Right? They think they know it. They think they know how to control it. They, they apply the same measures that worked in another place, and it doesn't work, and it spreads. And this really freaks them out. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so... I mean, we, we, we've been touching on this, but there are other non-human actors in the story uh, with the plague, rats, and with yellow fever, mosquitoes. Could you speak to, um, maybe, um, Christos, could you speak to the history of rats and um, anti-rat campaigns? Sure, yes. So I think there is an imagination in our world today that plague has al- always been associated with rats in in people's understanding of the disease, but that's not at all the case. I mean, if you if you go and read books, uh, even in Victorian times, before the 1890s, the rat is seen as destructive, it is a nuisance, it is a noxious animal, it's a vermin, but that's because it eats food, it destroys food resources. Uh, most uh, writings at the time would actually say that the rat is free of any disease and that, it's, uh, that, that this is a good thing, that's the redeeming characteristic of the animal. Um, there are, of course, already records from the 1850s which suggest that there may be some connection of, between plague and rats. Uh, these come from the Indian Himalayas in uh, Kuman and Garhwal. But these are uh, observations or, uh, or uh, if you want, systems of knowledge which are native. They're native Indian, uh, like Indian uh, systems of knowledge, which the colonial officers, the British colonial officers, uh, see with great suspicion. 
and they, it never leads the British uh, medical officers to a conclusion that plague actually spreads uh, uh, with rats or that rats have any actual uh, transmission uh, uh, role in this disease. Uh, in 1894, when Gerson uh, identifies the, the bacterium, as you, you know yourself, <laughs> you're an expert on this, uh, he makes some uh, vague mention of rats. There are, again, stories of rats being involved in Yunnan in the spread of plague. But he never he, really he's, you know, he's, he's in Hong Kong and he sees the rats dying and yeah. uh, coming out of the sewers. Yeah. yeah, But he never really makes much of it. I mean, he also says flies are transmitting mm. the plague. Uh, then in India, it becomes more systematic, this, uh, this study, with uh, Paul Louis Simon eventually in 1898 identifying the flea of the rat as the intermediary uh, vector. But again, this does not stabilize facts. People are not convinced. Right? So it's a very slow story you know, of the rat actually being accepted as not just a co-patient or a precursor of human plague, but actually the animal which is key to the transmission of the disease to humans, let alone the fleas being involved. That takes even longer. So it's a very complex story. So it's an unstable epistemic object, if you want, uh, the rat. And that's exactly what makes it so interesting. You know, that, uh, you know, there is no consensus on what it does with relation to plague. And although we have, we start having a global war, if you want, well, first a local war, local wars rather, and then kind of a more connected global war against the rat by 1900, we cannot really say that there is a, a common epistemological ground behind that, mm-hmm. nor even a methodological one, right? We have different methods applied in different places um, by different people and in different ways. Uh, and fumigation is one. Uh, Rat catching is another. Rat proofing is something that would be developed uh, a bit later, which proves to be more effective. Um, And within these methods, we have huge differences. So rat catching, just just to give an example, could involve the mass mobilization of the entire uh, adult population, as happened in the early uh, 20th century in Denmark. Or it could involve uh, uh, subalterns, so-called coolies, in the catching of animals, it could, as you know very well, <laughs> more than us, better than us, uh, rat catching through bounties, uh, or it could involve professional bodies of uh, you know, municipal workers, or it could involve uh, kind of uh, uh, clubs of white men with dogs, ratter dogs, say in Sydney or in Buenos Aires. You know, it's, it's, it's so polymorphous, and that's what makes it really, really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So, so returning in, uh, back to the sort of the the mechanism of uh, the Sophia Cutopia, um, the Clayton uh, machine is developed. So, what what is the Clayton machine, and and what 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 is its goal? What is its purpose? And um, does it does it work? Okay, we we, we come to the to the efficacy later, <laughs> but but. Um... First of all, the plate machine is a very simple machine. It's it's a it's a furnace that you use to burn sulfur. So you have this like yellow sticks they were called sulfur compacted sulfur that you could just ignite, and then it would burn. And when it was burning, it would it would release sulfuric acid gas. Yeah. And this furnace was then connected to a power blower. And a power blower would then lead this sulfuric acid gas coming from the furnace into the ships via pipes that were connected to the pipes coming out of the ships. Yeah, there is, because the sh- ships are already piped up for various. 
there, either, either ships are already piped up with pipes to to uh, uh, vent the ship in case of fire in the machine. There was mm. a system in place in many of the ships. But we also found lots of documents that ships had to install the pipes, for example, in, in New Orleans to be allowed to, to, to travel in or to even get insurance to travel across uh, the seas. So there were, there were lots of those indicators that the piping was very quickly done because everybody agreed that's very useful and makes sense. Yeah? But mm -hmm. it was also makeshift ways of just connecting the pipes to whatever venting system was on board of the ship available. And of course, the ship would move either on, on, the, on the quarantine station or it would moor next to a, to a tugboat where the clade machine sometimes was, was installed on little tugboats. And then uh, obviously all personnel would leave the ship. Yeah? There were no persons to be left alone. Uh, left, um, it, it, except for the occasional, the occasional drunk sailor. Except for the occasional drunk sailor, sailor exactly. Um, um, who, know, who regularly survived, yeah? Yeah. But then, and then, and then, I, the, I, love, I love the section where you, you, you noted that we, it, it wasn't clear whether he had passed out due to the sulfuric gas or he was just drunk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you would you would also assume like there is there's a certain I think to to really get into the scene is like you also have to imagine that that I mean it's sulfuric acid gas and we know this is this is the stuff stink bombs are made of yeah like this is this is a really really pungent smell that. I guess also has this kind of affective level of destruction that is associated with this. But the power blower would then just exchange all the air in the ship with sulfuric acid gas until there was a certain density that was theorized. And there were a few modification, modifications in the original machine trying to lower the temperature of the gas. This was shown to be a bit more effective. It was a bit cooled down. They would do this to, through some venting systems. But that was it. It was basically just a system to... To, to, to throw the sulfuric acid gas into the ship. The whole thing, thing was more or less invented not by Clayton himself, but by a guy named called James Holt, who is a local uh, a legend in, in New Orleans, in Yellow Fever, uh, post-bellum New Orleans, and who, who developed and tinkered with the systems for almost a decade in his position as, as the head of the Board of Health in New Orleans, and really champions also through lots of very engaging public speeches this as the, the method of the future with which New Orleans can finally escape the century of yellow fever attacks and also the century of uncertainty if yellow fever is caused by, by local conditions or by a pathogen that is carried in via insects. And he says, say, if we destroy everything on those boats, on those boats pathogens as well as insects, then we will know for sure, and if we put the system in place, New Orleans will be safe from yellow fever forever. And uh, small spoiler ahead, it, it wasn't. But again, that's part of our story. Yeah. yeah. So, so the machine actually, as you said, doesn't doesn't work, but doesn't fail. Right? It just it helps, but doesn't isn't a complete uh, cure. So, what what would things look like after a ship was gassed? Where where are the rats? Well, <laughs> can I can I go? Well, that, that's a big question, right? I mean, yeah. if the well, if the machine works, well, the, the point of the machine is that it should kill both the rats, the fleas, and the germ and the bacterium. So it's kind of this three triple action. That's the ultimate goal, 
right? Killing the, the host, the vector, and the bacteria. And the experiments involve, for example, hiding a small specimen of the bacterium in bales of uh, merchandise and see if the sulfuric gas manages to penetrate these bales and disinfect the, the bacterium. So it's both a disinfectant in the classical sense of the term. It kills the, the bacterium, but it's also uh, a, a, a deratization gas, right? And something that kills insects. So it's it, it's this three is this triple action which is important. The, the three Ds you talk about in the book, right? The three Ds, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think we forgot to mention that it is also a fire uh, oh, extinguisher. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So ports can have the machine and even if they don't have rats, they can use it to put out fires in, in boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, without without spoiling without spoiling the board's freight. The, the goods, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, or the yeah the, the goods or the actual um, uh, structure of the boat because that's another concern you know if you if you uh, fumigate the 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 sitting area or the the beds uh, etc of, of boats and some of these boats you know have elaborate and expensive furniture etc you know uh, will this be damaged or not so well if if uh, in the case where we have a successful fumigation. Over, uh, depending on the on the context, say forty eight hours or something, uh, then uh, they they are expecting to find rats. So you fumigate the boat with the cargo inside. Then people have to retrieve the rats. One of the big questions there is: Will the rat be able to smell the gas or sense the gas and then try to hide somewhere inside the structure of the boat and then die there? in which case it will then become itself a source of infection. Yeah. So and and, that, and just smelly and gross. <laughs> well, smelly and gross and also, yeah, a potential source of infection because they believe that corpses can uh, transmit plague. They believe right. that rats are cannibalistic animals, so they eat the corpses. So, you know, if a new rat comes in and it's a healthy rat, it will eat the plague-infected corpse and become infected. Um, it... It gets even more complicated, of course, uh, if you involve other understandings of plague transmission. So for people who believe that the soil uh, is involved in the transmission of plague, and Gersin is one of the big proponents of this theory, uh, even if you have a boat which uh, hasn't got any infected rats, and you get non-infected rats coming in from the the harbour, if the soil, which is lingering, you know, from carrying goods in and out, the dirt, which is uh, on the bales or in the, all these things that you, uh, you bring into the boat, if this soil is contaminated by plague, then these non-contaminated rats will become contaminated in the passage, say, from Alexandria to Trieste. So, under this theory, no boat is actually, can actually be said to be free of plague. That every boat has to be fumigated. You know, this is kind of a maximalist approach that the Ottomans uh, are adopting, basically to piss off the Brits, I think, <laughs> <laughs> who are furious, as, as you can imagine, because that means that you know you have a complete disruption of everything ac- across the Mediterranean. Yeah, and and that so that raises an important tension between the interests of public health stopping pandemics and the interests of capital. Um, the uh, the global flow of trade. Uh, we've touched on this previously, but could you could you say a few more words on that um, and how 
how the how some of these conflicts between again the public health and capital play out in your story? I think I mean I can start for for the United States where where I think this is this is really interesting how it plays out because it's 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 not just simply um it's not just simply a conflict in again if you if you take the example of New Orleans between the board of health and the board of trade yeah that that and they do have different opinions and they do have different viewpoints of a lot of questions pertaining to to hygiene and to what are the required measurements um quite reminiscent of certain contemporary arguments and questions yeah, around covid but but i think it's much more what 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 it what what is a key point in 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 new orleans at the time is that that on the one hand you have the the idea to abolish quarantine as something where everybody agrees on as as a good practice the board of trade agrees on that because it's a costly practice as christo said earlier but the board of health also agrees on because quarantine and the 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 extent to which ships are supposed to stay uh, in in isolated spaces before they're left inside the harbor is entirely uncertain. Nobody knows what the right amount of time is, and the right amount of time also is constantly undermined by epistemologies or by kind of the understanding, the shifting understandings of disease, as Christus just 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 mentioned. So also from the perspective of the Board of Health, abolishing the uncertainty of quarantine allows to set a new standard, a new modernized standard of security from disease. And that then fits into this larger system that New Orleans or the state of Louisiana found itself in, in the late of 19th century. And that was that whenever there was an outbreak of yellow fever, whenever there was an outbreak of any kind of disease in the, in the New Orleans harbor, States around Louisiana would would invoke so-called shotgun quarantines, and would just simply stop trade with Louisiana across the United States. And so, setting a standard that was supposed to protect the harbor in Louisiana was also supposed to then convince the public health service at that time still the the, the uh, marine hospital service. Now, what was it called? Yeah, um, um, a branch of the military. Uh, kind of in charge of the public health of the United States on a federal level, um, but it was supposed to also convince that service to adopt this new technology as a standard that all states then would have to apply and adhere to. So it's an interlinked process on many, many different levels. Yeah, that's excellent. So you have a section on um, Hamburg, Germany, and the plague uh, outbreak there. Could you speak to that and how it factors into your narrative on the the Clayton machine and and the sulfuric utopia? Well, as, as Christos mentioned earlier, the, the the this is a story that is that is not just a story of the Clayton machine, but it's a story of where the Clayton machine come to has come to 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 take a position of a, of of a technology or of an innovative technology that 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 was certainly one to be content or to contend with from many different points of view and from many different places. And one of the places was in Hamburg where um, uh, a similar principle was developed, but instead of using sulfuric gas or sulfuric acid gas, um, the entire system was based on um, generator gas, as it was called in German, basically carbon-based um, uh, um, carbon monoxide or carbon di dioxide 
developed in 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 um, then into uh, some kind of mixture, if I remember that correctly, and then introduced into the ship's holes just as it was with with uh, sulfuric acid gas. There were some um, experiments carried out just as much as there were experiments carried out with sulfuric acid gas in in in, in the U.S. and in France and in the U.K. and we we cover that quite extensively that all these questions of how efficient these gases were were tested in painstaking, detailed uh, setups. Same in Hamburg, it was the same kind of approachment. But in Hamburg, interestingly, this kind of gas was, was one that then was also understood to be um, used as one that was not as efficient as sulfuric acid gas, especially not as efficient as sulfuric acid gas when it comes to the destruction of vectors. To destruction of rats, but um, partly due to German pride, partly due to having fixated on that kind of comp competing technology and competing mechanism, uh, one 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 kept going with the generator gas and with the with the with the kind of institution or with the with the uh, um, apparatus that they had built there, and. Uh, Assumed that this that, that the use of this gas for every incoming ship from a harbor that was understood to be um, suspicious uh, would reasonably safeguard Hamburg from plague outbreaks, which it also seemed to have done more or less. Yeah. There were a couple isolated outbreaks in the history of Hamburg, of the, in the history of the Hamburg harbor, of, of, of or a couple of isolated plague cases, not outbreaks, but. Um, We never really seen any kind of, of um, outbreak comparable to the ones in, in, in San Francisco or Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. And then in, in chapter six, um, fumigating the nation in the Sulfurosador, forgive my pronunciation, in Argentina, um, uh, I, I was surprised by this chapter because we, we leave the ship and enter the port city in a I almost felt like a sailor on shore leave in uh, Buenos Aires. Um, could you tell us about the Argentine case study and um, how this is significant in your your overall uh, narrative? Sure, I, I love that picture of the sailor coming to shore. I think that is a very very astute picture of that that uh, um, story. And I wish we would have used that picture in the book. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the um, I've, I've got metaphors. I've got metaphors. That's wonderful. the 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 story The story in Argentina is is mind boggling, but it's a story that is also sitting very well, I think, in the story in the in the larger landscape of Latin American um, utopian uh, social medicine, utopian public health in a post colonial society or in a in a semi post colonial society, depending on where you look. But it is. It is it is a story certainly where where this idea of maritime hygiene is being observed, is being understood, and is being transferred into the fabric of urban density and to this kind of like age old trope of the city as a suspicious space in which disease fosters, in which disease emerges, and then it's a story that that grafts itself on beautifully on that on that longer history of a public hygiene. In Argentina, especially the the development of the large parks, the development of a sanitary society that is kind of like the city that needs to be structured by large breathing spaces that allow the gases, that allow the air to be compensated. But it's also a story of in Argentina, especially of where sulfur has a long history of being used to cleanse the air of all kinds of suspicious 
gases and suspicious putrefaction. Yeah? And, and that as a kind of uh, uh, a use of, of sulfuric gases that even the bacteriologists at the time look quite, look at, and the epidemiologists and bacteriologists, Jose, Pena especially, uh, look at with, with quite a lot of disdain that all these people use sulfuric gas, but they don't even know why they use it. They just use it for suspicious reasons. Therefore, they don't use it right. Yeah? And they come up with this idea that to actually safeguard a city against disease, one cannot only protect the harbor because that's always undermined by other countries, neighboring countries, who are not as good or not as equipped as Argentina to, to, to protect the harbors from the inroad of plague. And the only outbreaks in in Argentina of plague actually were uh, um, um, were introduced via Uruguay, yeah? or the first outbreaks, not the only outbreaks. But to really protect the city, to really protect the fabric of the city, we need to introduce the methods used at the harbor and disinfect and disinfest and deraticize the entire city. And they do that. They start that. They import a machine from 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 France, which 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 was in 1960. The newest intervention, it would basically work like the like the Clayton machine, but it had a, a, a mechanism that would electrify the gas, ozonify the gas, um, and therefore lead to a much higher efficacy against germs in the soil. Yeah? So was the theory at that time. And they would acquire six or seven of these machines, put them on horse carriages, on motor carriages in some extent, go around the city, start in the poorest quarters at the harbor and start sweeping the whole city over a month-long campaign and disinfect everything and anything you know, with sulfuric acid gas. And that's something that was done in similar ways in, Buenos, in, in Rio de Janeiro at the time. There, 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 there are certainly efforts to create this kind of hygienic space that is free of disease within a city so that the city can flourish, so that this new nation of Argentina can flourish, so that the new society can flourish. But it's, of course, also in there, the whole history of, 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 of um, social medicine in, in, in Latin America is so important. It's a story where, of course, with the purging of disease, you also purge a city of the bad morals, of the bad spirits, and of the bad politics. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, um, that all folds together in that chapter, as something where, where, as you say, the sailors land, but then also the sailor is subjected to the quarantine as a continued state of being, a continued state of purging and suspense towards uh, a kind of hygienic or hygienist life. Yeah, yeah I, I found that just a fantastic case study because it brought so many of these strands together in in one site and, uh, and again shows that jumping off the ship and into into the capital, into the nation state. So after about a decade of sulfur conquering the world of shipping and becoming the the thing to do, it goes into um, a fairly quick decline and is replaced by other forms of gas um, uh, used against rats and bacteria, uh, which eventually leads to the development of um, uh, a form of gas called Zyklon B, which has um, uh, a, a linkage, obviously, to uh, the Nazi regime and the Shoah. Could you speak to, to the sort of the the end of the sulfuric grain and and the rise of new gassing regimes? I think I think we can start with uh, the bankruptcy of the Clayton uh, Company, <laughs> uh, which is a kind of a mystery. We unfortunately we were not able, uh, and I don't know if we don't know if they exist uh, to discover uh, the 
archives of the company itself. So the company, which started in the States, had set up uh, various uh, kind of companies in France, in Britain, uh, with representatives in Indochina, etc., uh, etc. Et so it was very prolific. And uh, by 1905, 1908, it had cr- produced all these different machines, different types of the Clayton machine, small, big, for uh, houses, for boats, for all these things. Uh, but it apparently <laughs> uh, accumulated uh, in, in, in incredible debts uh, to several debtors. And then uh, the, all the companies declared bankruptcy in 1910. And from there on, we, we lose the uh, tracks of Thomas Clayton's life as well. Uh, of course, there were other machines, uh, such as the Argentinian uh, one, the Maho gas machines that used uh, sulfur, um, so the, the, uh, the Clayton company going bankrupt doesn't necessarily mean that that's the end of sulfur. Uh, however, there are, I think, two uh, uh, important developments here uh, which lead to the ab- gradual abandonment of uh, sulfur-based gases and their replacement by hydrocyanic uh, gases. And one is, uh, and I think it's an important epistemological shift, is kind of the stabilization of the rat and the flea. So as we progress from the 1910s uh, onwards, we have a a much clearer understanding in medicine and epidemiology of the uh, rat flea hypothesis and a much broader acceptance of it. Eventually, we have uh, uh, Baker's theory of the blocked flea, which has a necessary uh, mechanism to transmit uh, plague from rats to humans, and this is gradually accepted. Now, what this means is that um, what becomes established is the idea that if you can kill the flea and the rat, then you don't actually need to kill the bacterium as well because it dies by default because that's where the bacterium is. So the bacterium is not in a hundred different you know, <laughs> media. It's not in cloth and soil and grain and, and rats and fleas. It's just in rats and fleas. So as long as you can kill them, you're fine. And this ex- is extremely helpful because some gases are very, very good at killing rats, right? But really, really bad at killing bacteria. And hydrocyanic gases are such gases, right? So suddenly, the promise of sulfur, which is this triple action that we talked about, is no longer relevant. You know, as long as you can kill basically one, the rat, uh, I don't think at the time they had a very good understanding of what we call now the free-living flea, that the fact that if you kill the rat, then the fleas will actually be even more dangerous because they will seek other organisms to, to feed on. I don't think that was very clear to them at the time. Uh, but also it was, uh, hydrocyanic gas was good at killing fleas, I think. Uh, and it was easy to use in different ways, in ways that um, uh, sulfur uh, was not uh, usable. Sprays, for example. So it was very quickly developed into a spray, which you could use, you know, in, you can imagine these people with pumps uh, on their back uh, spraying hydrocyanic uh, gas inside crevices. So actually getting into the nesting uh, areas of the, of the rat. It's more of, which, more of a topical use rather than just use, doing... More precise yeah, use. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the main concern with hydrocyanic gas was, of course, that it was absolutely lethal to humans. Right? So sulfuric gas had this um, advantage because it, you could smell it, 
uh, as in the case of the dr- uh, drunk sailor, you know, you would smell it and then you would leave the area where which is, was being fumigated. So it, it really reduced the risk to humans. Whereas hydrocyanic uh, uh, or cyanide-based gases are uh, have no uh, smell, uh, so you cannot detect them. So that was a big concern at the time. But as uh, it became easier to seal off boats uh, uh, in a more efficient way, this was no longer cons- thought as a big concern. So the road was open for a new type of, of gas and a new type of treatment of boats and other areas. Uh, hydrocyanic gas was good for uh, houses or for land-based areas where, uh, well, sulfur was really you know, not the best gas for that. It was very difficult to seal a building so that the gas could stay in for 48 hours, right? So it had technological advantages, which combined with a new epistemology of, of a plague transmission worked really well. So it became uh, an antagonist of uh, sulfur. Uh, and it was seen especially by Americans, by uh, Creel. Creel was uh, an assistant st- uh, surgeon of the U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, you know, he, he praised this a lot in his writings. And he was a very influential guy when it came to rats and fleas and plague. So that's the, kind of the, the background. Of course, also the uh, World War I is important. Uh, where you have uh, experiments, uh, well, actual experiments on the ground. I mean, uh, uh, in warfare with different gases. The Reef War is another example where gases are are used. The Reef War in Morocco. In Morocco uh, against humans. So these lead to other types of gases which have short lives, but again, they antagonize sulfur. So sulfur is being kind of attacked by many fronts, but it is hydrocyanic gas which prevails. Right, which is developed into the brand name Zyklon B in, in the 1930s and then is actually, actually already, in, in Austria. Yeah. It's, it's actually already used, already developed in the 1920s in Zyklon in the 20s. A and then Zyklon B. And Zyklon B was, was supposed to be a mechanism that, that makes the gas a little bit safer in its, in its application because the dangers of its application were, were, were far outranking the dangers of applying sulfuric acid gas. It was uh, a much more dangerous um, um, chemical, and and the, but but uh, the gas wasn't really released, um, or the product cyclone B wasn't really. There were issues about releasing it because of the the Germans uh, were not allowed to to produce anything that was uh, um, anything even close to looking like a chemical weapon, and therefore it's one of the um, 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 curious aspects of that history that that cyclone B was developed to to. Particularly to 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 get around those restrictions as one that wasn't used, wasn't supposed to be able to or to to be capable of being used as a weapon. But that's a story that, that Re- restrictions restrictions from the Treaty of Versailles after exactly uh, exactly after World War One on the on on um, Weimar yeah. Germany. Yeah, but that's a story, of course, that has been has been developed in detail by Paul Weindling, and I think that's that's the absolute reference that that we also. Like, do not repeat or do not need to repeat in our book. But I think for us, it was just important to 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 keep an eye on that development and that really what we did in many ways with this with the story developed in this book is is to to create a bit more texture to how that those kind of metaphoric investments that were also part of Zyklon B as one used in the disinfection and disinfestation and deratization campaigns. And how these metaphoric investments that were associated with this gas were 
were developed over decades in maritime fumigation and that that history matters. And that that point of conversion is, is again, Nocht, Bernard Nocht and the Hamburg Institute for Tropical Medicine and the Hamburg Harbor in which those kind of convergence actually happen and in which these convergence also then create um, uh, important continuities between the protection of the German Reich against uh, the introduction of pathogens and the protection of the German Reich against uh, uh, in what, what they then pursue as uh, perceive as as the 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 the, um, the 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 enemy from within. Yeah. Right. Right. So we're talking on March 11th, uh, 2021. So this is one year to the day that the World Health Organization tweeted that we are in a pandemic. <laughs> the official, It's not official until it's been tweeted, right? Um, so we obviously have to address the gorilla in the room, uh, COVID-19. Um, how does your research uh, intersect with the current pandemic? Well, I think we were both pleasantly surprised to see that The Guardian included uh, the book in, what was it, the 20 or 30, whatever it was, books to help us uh, understand 2020. We thought the book was to help us understand the 19th century. (laughs) 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 Uh, We're pleased it was included in that list. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) I didn't didn't see that list. That's great. Yeah, but I I think that... at least I am very reluctant and, and rather hostile to this whole framework of lessons from history, which has become this uh, great pacifier in this pandemic. I think it's, well, see, you're uh, an anthropologist, and that's why you're I'm hostile to that. No, okay, but go on. I, I, mean, I, 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 I have to say, I, I entirely agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're a traitor to the profession, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> But you, 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 have, you have to agree also that it's ethnographically interesting what's happening, that suddenly, you know, history is useful, guys. You know, history is cool because it can tell us some, some repetitive uh, narratives, basically, about today. And uh, I think it's really, really upsetting, this whole uh, genre of uh, lessons uh, from history. But I think there are uh, uh, definitely warnings, if you want, from history or... Um, or ideas that come from a historical, a critical historical study of uh, epidemiological and medical processes. And generally, the third plague pandemic, uh, history of the third plague pandemic, and specifically of uh, plague control, vector control through these uh, fumigation technologies, is, you know, is very helpful in, in, in uh, for us uh, if we want to unsettle the given understandings of, of COVID-19 and its control. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you, you both have been really generous with your time and um I I've got so many more questions and I could keep you on the on the line for a couple hours. But um before I let you go, I've got two more questions. First, can you each recommend two books for our listeners? I mean, the Guardian's already recommended your book, so <laughs> I I I, I can go ahead. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll decide to stay a bit in, in, in connection with, with our Sulfuric Utopias book. And I think two books that I really enjoyed reading over the last few months uh, was one was The Economization of Life by Michelle Murphy, which I think is a brilliant, a brilliant expose of, of, the, of the kind of development of, of global health or of global development politics with regards to the, to the, to the 
integration of population science. And she does this really nicely from, from Drosophila experiments by Raymond Pearl all the way to the value of the unborn life in, in, in fertility politics in the 1970s or 60s and 70s. And it's just a fantastic read to, to really rethink this idea of global development. Um, the second in a similar vein is Heidi Twarek, News from Germany, the history of world communications. And, and it has a fantastic chapter on, on, and a fantastic work that Heidi has also done previously on, 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 on the communication of, of epidemic news or of epidemic intelligence in the League of Nations Health Bureau and later in the WHO and how communication infrastructures were, how important communication infrastructures are to the um, understanding the reaction to and the containment of pandemics and epidemics. And I think that's, that's a book that has long been, we all have been long waiting for. <laughs> yes, I would say uh, Rohan Debroy's Malarial Subjects, uh, which is on, uh, as the subtitle goes, Empire, Medicine and Non-Humans in British India from 1820 to 1909. I think it's a brilliant book. It's also open access, uh, which is uh, uh, wonderful. And this is really revolutionizing, I think, our understandings of uh, entanglement between empires, diseases, and animals, and also uh, medications, because it's also in quinine. Mm. So this is a uh, quinine uh, kind of uh, development and, and trade uh, in, in the British uh, Empire. And um, this is really something that I, re I enjoy reading uh, with, uh, colleagues with my postdocs, the reading group where we have uh, de generally uh, De Broglie's work, and I think it's 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 doing something which is so much more than the old kind of I, I can say it's old now old tired Laturian uh, animals as agents uh, thing. You know, it's it's moving to a much more complex understanding which includes political economies. It includes really nuanced understandings of power and of animals uh, as contributors to, uh, to the history of empire. And the second book uh, would be uh, Don Day Biller's uh, 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 Pests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches and Rats, which I think is a great book. It was, it was pe Pests in the City, right? I think it's Pests in the City. Yeah, Pests in the City, yeah. Pests in the City, yes. Um, which is amazing for uh, as a history of uh, of uh, domestic pests and pest control in the USA uh, and about racial and economic injustice and gender aspects of uh, pesticide and uh, pest ecologies and pest control I think this is kind of a, a modern book on the subject great so uh, Christos what are, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next Ah, so yeah, I'm currently on research leave until 2023. Uh, very happy. Rub, rub it in, rub it in. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, I've uh, I've finally managed to submit the monograph from the, my old project, from the Visual Plagues project, which is on uh, the emergence of epidemic photography. And now I'm working on uh, my rats book, which is on um, the development of understandings and framings of rats as plague-related animals, let's say. Uh, a global history. Fantastic. I'm, I, so I, many of my colleagues call me the rat guy, and I'm really happy to pass that mantle on to you. <laughs> well, um, I, I've been I, the marmot guy for so long. The marmot guy. <laughs> 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 well, it makes me think of the big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
and, and Lucas. Um, yeah, I, I I just started my my research project on the history of epidemiological reasoning, and I'm I'm very excited to do this work finally, or to be able to do this work finally. Uh, we have a lot of big things coming up. Um, there will be there will be two jobs, two what I think are very attractive postdoc jobs that will be announced shortly. And uh, we have a workshop on what was epidemiology. The call for paper is out. And um, you can find all of these information and also a long list of references for the history of epidemiology on the project's Twitter account, ERC Epidemi, with a Y at the end. That uh, It's been a great pleasure to, to curate this list. I'm currently at number 60 of 100. And there's 40 more to go, so I'm already trying to making making difficult choices what not to include and what to include. But it's a great exercise to 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 level the playing field of what are we talking about when we talk about the history of epidemiology. And I think there are a million answers to this. And the idea of this project is to develop a few new perspectives, but also to to open up a few more doors into into to corporations or collaborations between history and anthropology, history and sociology, and STS. And Great, and, and you're you're pushing that out on Twitter. I'm pushing well, that out on Twitter, yeah. but I'm also working seriously on on, on other publications yeah. in the meantime. And what, what was what Sometimes. was the Twitter handle on that? What That's was the Twitter e handle on that? It's it's ERC Epidemi. So great. I think and, we all follow each other, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, and and yeah, Christos, yeah. what what was what was your um uh, your Twitter account for our listeners who might uh, want to follow? Vi uh, Visual Plague. Visual Plague. Great. So thank you so much uh, for chatting with me. I've really, really enjoyed this. So this has been a conversation with Lucas Engelman and Christos Linteras about their new book, Sulfuric Utopias, A History of Maritime Fumigation, out with MIT Press in 2020. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>